Tonight on Farage, we discuss a report into the government's handling of the pandemic. It's pretty damning. Do you think they deserve to take the blame? Insulate Britain. Are their actions akin to those of terrorists? We have a debate with two barristers on that subject. And joining me on Talking Pines is Matt Fidesz. He was Michael Jackson's bodyguard for 10 years, martial arts expert and serial entrepreneur. A report came out late last night talking about government failings during the pandemic. The Health and Social Care Committee, which is made up of members of parliament from across the political spectrum, have produced a pretty damning report. Indeed, they've said it turned out to be one of the worst ever public health failures. They highlighted indecision being too slow to lock down. And, of course, the reason for that was the government was pursuing a herd immunity strategy to begin with. They then listened to Professor Ferguson, thought too many people would die, and then they locked down. But the committee found it was done too late. They are critical of the £37 billion. I mean, it's eye-watering, isn't it? That amount of money was spent on test and trace, and much of it was pretty ineffective. On travel... Our borders remained open. As the pandemic spread in this country and around the world, astonishingly, 18 million people flew in to Heathrow and Gatwick and our major airports and many other countries, like the USA, had taken action. We didn't, and that almost certainly led to more variants getting into the country. But against those criticisms, it was an unprecedented situation that the government faced. There isn't, I have to say, any evidence that anyone would have done better. I'm not sure a Corbyn government would have handled it any better. And, on the impressive side of it, the vaccine rollout was a big success. So there were two sides of the argument that are being made today. My own view is that, frankly, uh, when it came to travel, what they did was unforgivable. I remember I was broadcasting um, on the radio on the Sunday when Lombardy was declared to be an emergency zone and a really harsh lockdown was put in place. We saw distressing pictures of hospital corridors in Milan, uh, full hospital beds had run out. And yet on that very day, 17 flights of people who'd been to northern Italy skiing during the half-term break, 17 flights left Milan's Malpensa airport and flew into the United country, into the United Kingdom. I mean, the whole thing was complete and utter madness. We're told that one of the reasons Boris didn't lock the borders down is he feared it would look too nationalist. On the money side of things, well, look, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's nobody in government, frankly, with any proper business experience. PPE contracts were handed out to all and sundry, including... Matt Hancock's landlord of his local pub in Suffolk, who managed to land a PPE contract despite having no previous experience in the sector whatsoever. And, yeah, they blew tens of millions on PPE for no reward whatsoever. I do praise, uh, you know, the actions of Kate Bingham. I do praise the way we got the vaccine rollout working in time. But the question for you tonight, and please do come to me with your thoughts, gbviews at gbnews.uk, is do you blame the government for what has happened? I have to say, however much people do or don't blame the government, I doubt politically it will have very much effect at all, even though a lot of people, particularly in care homes, lost their lives wholly unnecessarily, emptying out the NHS wards, spreading COVID into the old people's homes. It was truly dreadful. 
But the reason I don't think it will personally have a big impact upon the government is, as I said earlier, there is no evidence that anybody else would have done better. Now, moving on to our big debate this evening. My favourite people at Insulate Britain, you may remember the other day that I was stuck on the M25 because of these people for a considerable period of time. And as the days have gone by, their actions have got worse and worse. You've seen distressing pictures of a woman shouting at the protesters, I want to get to hospital to see my mum. And then we had Roger Hallam. Now, he's the guy that was the founder of Extinction Rebellion. Some press reports suggest that he, in fact, has set up this splinter group, Insulate Britain. He denies it. However, he's been speaking out very clearly on behalf of Insulate Britain, and at no point has the group disavowed his words. He was asked with these M25 and elsewhere protests. Would he block an ambulance with someone dying inside it in order to get his message across? And he said, yes, he would. He went on to say, people who run society, run big business, people that he judges to be culpable, maybe should get a bullet through their heads. Now, if that's not a threat, if that's not pretty close to what we would normally define as terrorism, I don't know what is. And there is, of course, the 2000 Terrorism Act. And one of the clauses here, of the definitions of terrorism, is endangers a person's life other than that of the person committing the action. Creates a serious risk to the health and safety of the public or a section of the public. Our policing of Insulate Britain to date has been pathetic. Uh, one particular protester, arrested five times. In the space of ten days, they get taken down to the police station. Uh, some notes recorded and let out. And a delicious story um, overnight of one of the protesters whose husband actually has become quite wealthy in the transport business. I mean, you couldn't even make this stuff up. But should we think about Insulate Britain in a very different way? And I have to say... I think that in many ways, if they are prepared to directly threaten the lives of other people, I think there is a, perhaps a serious debate to be had about whether this is an eco-terrorist organisation and whether that doesn't empower the police to do far more about it. So I'm joined uh, to have this debate. I'm joined by Jerry Hayes, criminal bar barrister, of course, former Tory member. Um, of the House of Commons, one of the awkward squad, and criminal... Oh. <laughs> criminal... As awkward as you. <laughs> well, that may be true. And criminal barrister, Diana Constantinidi. Jerry, uh, I mean, we all know these people are a damn nuisance. Yes. And you've got people trying to go to family funerals or get but a flight. they're more than a damn nuisance. They're stopping ambulances. There was a woman who had a stroke and she was paralysed. That's right. There are people who died. And they are asked, look, will you, will you let an ambulance through? The answer is no. Mm. That is an utter disgrace. Are they terrorists? Of course they're not terrorists. But they should be treated with the full impact of the criminal law. 
Well, you say that, but what is the criminal law in this case? Because, it, I mean, we've heard about the government seeking injunctions. We've heard the Boris gets up at the Tory party. Oh, you can't believe speech. a word Boris Johnson No, well, I do. I oh, come on. I generally okay. try oh, not to. Of course to. you can. It's all rubbish. <laughs> but, it's but, all right. What and is... Priti Patel will be there when the first person is arrested. At the end of the day, how do we stop this particular problem? Yeah, you tell me. And we make it uh, a criminal offence which is imprisonable. Simple and as straightforward as and that. what would... So, OK. Magistrates' court, too, because you don't want to clog up um, the courts. In, so in, you don't think they court. should be classed as terrorists. No. I understand that. No. But what piece of legislation do the police need? How do we get the... I mean, as I say, but, one of those protesters arrested five times but, in ten but, days. That's ludicrous. But, you see, you've actually summed it up. You answered your own question. What are the police doing about it? Why aren't the police... Go There's a paramedic. My son is a critical care paramedic. Right. Uh, he'd be on the N25. He hasn't dealt with one of these people. You had to see a paramedic pulling yes. people yes. away right. to let an ambulance through, which is disgraceful. Jerry, we're all agreed it's disgraceful, but does it need fresh legislation? No, it doesn't need fresh legislation. It needs common sense. OK. It needs proper policing. And that should be applied by the police? Of course. Fine. OK. But I'll tell you one thing they've done. They gave the Tory party conference something to cheer about. They saved Boris Johnson. They saved Priti Patel, <laughs> who are not exactly the great people to support freedom. You will now get draconian laws as a result of these people, because Priti Patel would be allowed to do things that the people like you, I suspect well, I you as well... Law. I want the law to be used against yeah, bad people, but not we... against good people. Exactly. You know. Well, I, I, I still disagree, Jerry. I still think there are grounds. There are grounds, and they may be slightly marginal, but I've read the words in the Act. Diana, what do you think? I mean, Jerry says tougher sentencing. Um, I mean, I think we're all agreed here. They're a damn nuisance. And by the way, they're not doing their own cause any good. No. I mean, this is not bringing greater sympathy. No. You, you, you know, and, and, and when you hear the rest of the stuff they stand <laughs> for, like the sequestration of assets and all... I mean, it's a Marxist organisation. But would it be useful, in some circumstances, for the police to be able to use some of the powers that they've got under the 2000 Terrorism Act? Uh, definitely. So um, if I can just put some facts in place, which is very helpful, and there's some key words here that are buzzing. First of all, um, not allowing the ambulance to enter the M25 because of advancing their own ideological cause, whether that it's an eco-friendly ideological cause, it doesn't really matter for terrorism act itself. In uh, 21st of September, there's been a court order um, telling them that forbidden to go to M25, and actually there is a nine forbidden points. And what, that was the injunction, yeah. That's the injunction. And on the yeah. 5th of October, the court uphold that order, saying that this is right, you're not allowed to go to M25, and uh, there's a trial pending now, and that is enforced until the 21st of May 2022, this order. Yeah, but they're still on the road. Yeah. They're still <laughs> stopping people. So you can talk about terrorism as much as you like. You can talk about terrorism. This is about police but, action. But, OK, but, but we could argue the police took some action here, but the legal process is taking time, whereas, yeah. under the Terrorism Act, the police have the powers to act. Now, you know, th they've there may be the some dangers. they the powers to act now. 
So, so what would you advocate that the, the police should be able to do? Um, I believe that under the Terence Mac 2000, there is the scope to actually invite the Crown Prosecution Service to look into, apart from breaching the order that is in place today, of course, to look into the terrorist acts. And I do understand that the um, Labour MP, Khalid Mahmouti, actually invited the audience to look into it and whether they should be referring them as terrorists. And that's something that we should be looking into it under the Terrorism Act. Because, as you said, section, subsection, section 1, subsection 2 actually yep. talks about it. Yep. Which is endangering uh, a person's life other than the person committing the action. And that is in place. The ambulance, the woman that had a stroke. Yeah, yeah. But um, how do you deal with it now? There are not enough police well, well, officers. Well, well, but, but, but this, this is the question, right? Under the Terrorism Act, the police have much stronger powers to act immediately. But there are not enough people to police it. I think. So the, it's a nonsense. Look, we, let, let's face it. How many of these protesters are there? Is it 120? It's something like that that have been actively involved in this. They're threatening to disrupt COP26 when, when you know, Boris wants this to be a big show, showcase, 100 world leaders coming to Glasgow oh. and all the rest of it. I mean, there aren't that many of these people to deal with, it seems to me. Now, I suppose it's possible that if you imprison some, you create new martyrs. But I don't think there are that many people who are so bassy. It's a policing problem. It's not a terrorism problem. But if they... But, Jerry, I repeat the point. If they haven't got the necessary powers... They have right got now, the powers. They can arrest these people. Well, you can arrest you've them, got and them Look, you've got injunctions, which is a bit of a clunky way of doing it. OK, you can increase the sentences to two years. Fair enough. They won't get two years. But it's a good deterrent. The big thing is, it's a deterrent. We've got to deter these people. We've got to stop them doing it. You can talk about acts of terrorism. It doesn't matter. You've got to have the police there to stop these people but, doing what they're but doing. But the police take them away. They're taken to the station. They're let out the same day. As you say, there is a court case pending. Yeah, oh. trial. Yeah. Trial, I'm yeah. sorry. And that's, on, and that's on October the... Um, there hasn't been a trial date, but this order is in place until the 21st of March, yeah, uh, May 2020. So there hasn't been a trial date set. No, so I this is for the injunction. This is for the injunction. Yeah. Hang on, it's not, the injunction. It's not criminal, yeah. The injunction uh, actually sets out. You have to set out which roads, all sorts of things. Yes, you, it's insane. Yeah. So you can keep it's changing. It's very specific. Yeah. So injunctions are clunky. Not a good thing. You need. So instead, you move. Instead, they can move to the M4. We just need more. We just need more police and more deterrence. So Diana, getting back to this, getting back. To the fairly extraordinary powers that the 2000 Terrorism Act does give the police to pick people up and detain them, and, and I mean not forever, obviously, but no. but it does give them power to do it. So, would you? Who would invoke this? Would it be the police that made the decision they would use the act? Would it be on instruction from the Home Secretary? How would it work? I believe, in my, in my view, the list of defendants that have been unnamed on the order, but there is a list of, of, of these people, um, if they breach the order, then the Crown Prosecution Service should be investigating and looking into whether, apart from oh. breaching that order, whether they actually form... Uh, so would it be the CPS, then, that would advise? Well, no, this is all but, about advice. Look, there are people on the road. Right. How do we get them out if of the road? Power, if, we, if the Home Secretary or the CPS say there is a case, there is a case here to invoke the Terrorism Act, there is a case to do it because other people's lives are being directly put at threat. Indeed, and yes. some of their, you know, one of their leading spokespeople um, has advocated that's what they would do. Presumably then that instruction goes to the police that they can arrest people quoting that act. So would it be the Home Secretary's responsibility to do this? I mean, this, I'm asking, Jerry. Does I'm, it I'm, matter? Yeah, it, you, you know what? We, well, I think it does. It doesn't. Look, people don't give a damn about these things. They want to get to their work. They want their families to go to hospital. Right. They want 
the ambulances to go through. They don't want to talk about, ooh, could this be the, oh, the CPS can look at this and see. No, they want action. And we haven't got action at the moment. And that's bad policing. But if we, if we, were, if we were to invoke... It wouldn't make any difference at all. You still need the police officers to enforce it, don't you? And it's not just that, it's accountability as well. It's for those people to be held accountable because um, I do understand that in, uh, in one of the television shows, they did actually, the, the leader of this group said that he was aware that this woman had a stroke and yes. he still insisted on not allowing it to go through. Yes. Um, he was asked as to whether there was um, a kid that had to go to chemotherapy and he said, no, I wouldn't allow the kid to go to chemotherapy. So there is the intention but that's of endangering the event. a person's... Um, Alive, so um, it's months it, after the, the event. Invoked, but if the act was invoked, the police could act pretty much immediately. Well, they can act now and under the Terrorism Act, get them in court the next day. Yeah. Well, I, I, Jerry, I understand your point. Um, you know, look, I want a, action. I mean, like I'm not asking for, by the way, I'm not asking for new legislation, no, because there's so much legislation look, on the statute look, already. All three of us want the same thing mm -hmm. we want the roads to be clear, mm -hmm. we want people to go to hospital, mm -hmm. we want people not to be interrupted with their daily business. That's no, no, we agree thing. on that. We're agreed. We and, agree on that. And there was a bit more into that as well. A bit what? A bit more into that. It's not just about, you know, get to what you need to get, but also did these people actually commit a criminal offence? Well, that's after the event. Right? The most important thing is to clear the road. Yeah, well, thank you both, Jerry, Diana. Very interesting debate. And I, and I you know, polling on this shows that the number of people that actually support the actions. Oh, apart from Prince Charles, of course. Isn't he helpful? Isn't he wonderful? Goodness gracious me. We've got Harry discrediting the royal family, Prince Andrew bringing it into disrepute, and Charles understands their actions. God help us. But we all want action. I think there is, a, I, I think there is actually room, genuinely room, and I hope somebody raises this question in the House of Commons and says to Priti Patel, you know, come on, you keep talking about injunctions. What about the legislation that is here in this act when it's pretty clear their stated aims? They couldn't care less who dies as long as they attempt to get their point across, which, of course, they always singly fail to do. Love your thoughts on this, please. GBviews at gbnews.uk. In a moment, we'll talk about Superman, who has been through just the most remarkable metamorphosis um, and is now not going to be battling to save the world but to stop people who've lost asylum claims from being deported from the United States of America. And woe betide anyone that criticises the new super-political Superman. Well, the MP's report into the government's handling of the pandemic was pretty damning in some areas. Yes, they were praised for the vaccine rollout, but frankly, for not very much else. What do you think about this report and the culpability of the government and will it make any difference? Gordon on email says, I think the report is overcritical. Whilst the test and trace cost concern is understandable, the rest is ridiculous. It was totally unprecedented. Gordon, what wasn't ridiculous were people shouting loudly, do what America's done, do what other countries have done, stop vast numbers of people flying into the country without being questioned, without being tested and allowed get, to get on the busy underground and spread this through London and the rest of the country. And, and, and frankly, that, I think, for me, was absolutely inexcusable. Linda has sent this in to GB Views. No, I don't. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. We will never know if anybody else could have done better. 
I don't want to find out. No, I agree with that. And, Linda, I did make that point twice in my initial talk-in, that there is no... The reason I don't think it will make any political difference, even though what happened in the care homes was truly dreadful, is that, you know, as you say, there is no evidence that anybody else would have done any better. Susan emails in to say, yes, I do blame the government, plus Sage and Neil Ferguson. Well, interestingly, one of the things the report does say that many of the decisions that were taken were taken as part of groupthink, where people sitting around a table uh, convince themselves that they're all right about something. There's not enough critical thinking coming into it. Tom on GB Views says, no, they were forced to take on an unprecedented situation happening in real time. Hindsight is always 2020. Yes, I know, but I repeat the point. There were loud warnings coming in that if you're flying into Heathrow from Milan, of all places, at least you should be asked to take a test. At least you should be asked to quarantine. At least you should be asked to find somehow, if you can, a means of transport home that is not on the crowded London underground. And I will not change my mind on that. I really, really will not. Now, Mark White, our Home Affairs and Security Editor, has been on Jersey for a couple of days and he's looking today very specifically at the fishing industry. And the leaders on Jersey have launched a blistering attack on French fishermen, accusing them of effectively piracy and seriously threatening the livelihoods of their counterparts on the Channel Islands. It comes as French government ministers threaten to cut off power supplies to Jersey in a row over Brexit fishing licences. The Jersey government has refused more than 70 licences to French boats, which has infuriated the government in Paris. Well, Mark's been there. He's been out and about speaking to locals, speaking to fishermen. Let's see his report from Jersey, filmed today. Heading out of St Helier, Jack Bailey is one of Jersey's youngest skippers. But any youthful enthusiasm has long since been replaced by the worry and stress that comes with trying to scrape a living from an industry that's been squeezed relentlessly over the years. Add to that French counterparts seemingly just as desperate and determined to fish Jersey's waters whether they have the right to or not and tensions here are the highest they've been in many years. Certain boats have had a lot of problems with the French. With, um, it's, just, it's just like an outright raw, war, you know. It's, it's a shame because, I mean, they are our neighbours and we do get on with certain boats and... The row that's currently raging centres on the granting of licences to fish Jersey's waters in the post-Brexit deal between the EU and the UK. Speaking to islanders, many tell me they feel caught in the middle. They were never given a vote over Brexit, yet they're dealing with the everyday consequences of the deals hatched in its aftermath. Well over a hundred fishing licences are about to be handed to French boats. Way more than ever fished these waters before, according to islanders. And yet the French are furious because more than 70 licence applications are being rejected. Senior government ministers in Paris are even threatening to cut off electricity supplies to Jersey in retaliation. 
that is not something that you expect a G7 nation uh, to do. They should be sitting down round the table looking at the evidence. If vessels have got evidence that they've fished in our waters for that period, they're entitled to a licence. But let's equally be clear, if they haven't, they are not entitled to a licence and we would be breaching the trade deal if we gave them a licence. The government here certainly hopes the threats from Paris won't materialise. But even a partial shutdown of the interconnectors between here and France would prove extremely disruptive to island life. The government here has drawn up contingency plans with Jersey Electricity. And should the worst happen, with the French either reducing or cutting off power supplies, they're confident that the power station here at La Colette will be able to meet demand for a while at least. We, we, we do... We do lobster pots and crab pots. We have to do, to do, get a living out of it, you've got to do on your own 300 pots a day, which is difficult. Like his fellow fishermen on Jersey, Paul Bizek believes that many of their French counterparts are simply chancing their arm in a way that's threatening the Jersey fishing industry's very existence. They're going to rape our seas, they're going to rob us blind and we're going to be out of business. Back in May, Royal Naval vessels were called to Jersey to help after French boats blocked the harbour at St Helier. And many here fear they're about to return. Last time round, authorities told local fishermen to stand down and not confront the French. But if it happens again, all bets are off. Uh, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the Jersey fishermen will react this time because trouble is, Jersey's not... Fight, fighting another another island over something that is, you're fighting a nation so you're not I mean it is, it is a hard one but I don't think Jersey fishermen will take no take no more of this. I mean if they want to come back and blockade this time we will be there for them uh, to, to stop them coming in and the results will be the result if if some of us go to have to go to jail well we have to go to jail because you feel that strongly? We do yeah we're losing our livelihoods and if our government had a bit of backbone, I'm sure it would help us. Mark Drellod has fished these waters for three decades. He's good friends with some of the French skippers. If it comes to confrontation, he says the most sensible option would be to stay in port. I think if they're, be, if they're angry like they are at the moment, it'd be very worrying because... Um, you know, if our boats do go out and try and, and battle with them or, you know, try and stand our ground with them, that they might get angered and, and ram our boats, which are a lot, lot, lot bigger than our boats. All sides here hope calmer heads will prevail, but these are uncertain times where the plight of fragile fishing communities continues to stoke intense emotions on both sides of the channel. Mark White, GB News, Jersey. Well, a powerful report there by Mark White. And yes, even letting 100 boats into Jersey's waters uh, is environmentally going to be hugely damaging, let alone another 70 on top of that who've never fished in those Jersey waters before. The French are just trying it on. They simply want everything. And certainly since Brexit in the Eastern Channel, what we've seen uh, are French and Dutch boats uh, fishing with absolutely no regard for fish conservation whatsoever. So it isn't just about the livelihoods of those men and their families in Jersey. There is a big environmental dimension to this too. And as many of you will know, fishing is a subject very close to my heart. Some friends of mine have been in Cornwall today, caught several large bluefin tuna. But I'm not jealous at all. Now I'm here at GB News and very happy to be. Now...
Some what the Farage moments today that have really made me think. Take your minds back, if you can, to the 1970s. And if you can't, let me tell you, it was pretty awful. The rubbish piling up and Leicester Square, I mean, turned into a complete heap. Inflation going through the roof. Trade unions flexing their muscles. Tax rates going up and talented people leaving the country. That was how it felt for much of the 1970s. It was awful. But I'm beginning to wonder whether there isn't a slight touch of deja vu around the place because inflation is going up more quickly than the Bank of England expected. Taxes are going up in the spring. You will all feel it. Taxes on national insurance for employees, for employers, and taxes on dividends too. And a government that can't guarantee they won't raise taxes again. But surely, surely we could never see the scenes of rubbish piling up on Britain's streets. Or could we have a look at Brighton? This is Brighton today, not in 1979. And Brighton is run by the Green Party, and they're having a big row with all of the waste disposal drivers and crews, and rubbish is piling high. In some streets, it's six to eight feet high. And, of course, with that, you've got vermin, you've got foxes tearing open bags, rubbish strewn all over the street. Now, it was Liam Halligan, who, of course, is GB News' economics editor, who's been banging on for some months, saying we could be facing a winter of discontent. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be as bad as the 1970s, but goodness me, we do have, do we not, some shades of it. And by the way, no prospect, no prospect that that strike action in Brighton is going to end between now and the middle of November. That's what's on the cards at the moment, and I feel very sorry for the residents of Brighton. I really do. Education is something that I've been really worried about for a long time. What is being taught to children in schools, universities, and a real what-the-farage moment here. It is truly incredible that in one school, teachers have been banned from calling pupils' behaviour good or bad because the school is trying to avoid using emotional phrases while managing discipline. The headmaster at the private Loughborough Amherst School in Leicestershire has instead asked staff to describe behaviour as skilful or... Un I mean, you couldn't make this up. As skilful or unskilful. He is hoping to take the emotional heat out of language at the independent school for children aged 4 to 18. Now, it costs 13 and a half grand uh, to send your child there. Uh, there are 313 pupils at the school. And the headmaster has said, "What well, I don't want teachers to be soft, I also don't want them to be shouty and make pupils feel guilty. I mean, you almost can't believe it, can you? That if we're going to stop teaching children the difference between good and bad, the difference between right and wrong, we might as well give up. I've got to tell you, I certainly wouldn't be sending my children to a school with that ethos. Now, the biggest What the Farage moment, for me, perhaps in weeks, is Superman. We all know, don't we, Clark Kent, married to Lois Lane, the great superhero who goes out and, of course, wants to take on the enemy and save the world. And he is this big, masculine, alpha male figure. 
uh, described by one of his filmmakers as one of the most heterosexual role models he'd ever seen. Well, on the endangered species list are alpha males. It's just you're not allowed to be like that anymore. So we now have a new Superman, and it is indeed the son. It's John Kent, and John Kent uh, is coming out in DC Comics as being bisexual. Uh, that's just the beginning. But what he's also going to be doing is he's going to be fighting some different campaigns. Rather than taking on enemies that could destroy the world, now he's going to do some rather different things. He'll be fighting against climate change. That's a very, very important part of what he'll be doing. And in particular, something that is incredibly political, he will be campaigning against the deportation of those who do not qualify as refugees and have entered America illegally. Now, that is all astonishing. But what really, really got to me was the author, Tom Taylor, who has written this new script, was asked whether his complete change of the character and the issues and battles that he fought on, he was asked what the reaction from the audience was. And he said, oh, many people, most people have been strongly supportive, but of course there are a few trolls. Yes, if you don't agree with the new political Superman, if you don't agree with the campaigns that he's fighting, you are now effectively a troll, and this is how free speech gets attacked. And I don't like it one little bit. And lastly, hot off the press, I mean, talk about what the Farage, Matt Hancock, who, as viewers of this show will know, I always thought was extraordinarily useless, has been hired as a special representative on financial innovation and climate change for the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. Financial innovation. I mean, this is a bloke whose local publican got a PPE contract. In fact, thinking about it, if there's lots of UN money floating around, there might be quite a few African regimes who really will welcome him into the job. Now, in a moment, I'll be joined by Matt Fidesz, who was for 10 years acted as a bodyguard and a friend and an advisor to the late Michael Jackson. He's a big martial arts expert and he's a serial entrepreneur. Yep, it's my favourite time of the day. The GB News pub is now open. We're about to do Talking Pints. And a very interesting man, Matt Fidesz, is joining me today. Matt, welcome to GB News. Welcome to Great Talking to, Pints. Great to be here. Very nice to meet you. Now, your story is pretty interesting. Because you're 16. Mm. You have not exactly distinguished yourself academically at school, have you? I did my best. Did you? I did my best, but you can't... I just truly believe, Nigel, you can't just have one education that suits everyone that's in the school of seven, 800 kids. You can't have 40 children in, in the room and a teacher teaching everyone the same, the same subject for everyone to pick it up. I mean, they, you know, little mistakes happen. Like, I can't, I can't write. Um, yeah. Um, I can read perfectly fine. Yep. But I never had to write. I mean, I'd sign autographs or do signatures all my life. <laughs> That's all I've had to do. Um, but that wasn't how you started, because at 16, you were, sort of li you were living in a bedsit in yeah. North Devon. Yeah. And within a few years, with quite, quite a short space of time, you've actually made a few quid, haven't you? 
Yeah. So, so I moved to North Devon from Swindon. Yep. With this idea to set this business, a, a martial arts school. No one quite done it before. There's no like blue. So you were doing martial arts as a teenager. Yeah, and that's all I ever wanted to do. What, I just taekwondo or taekwondo. Yeah, and all, all the kind of other styles too. I was martial arts fanatic. I just didn't get the whole thing. It really clicked at 12 years old in my mathematics class. When the teacher was teaching us uh, GCSE mock question back then, yep. how many different ways can you put 50p into a phone box? I just thought, this is ridiculous. How am I going to use this? Plus, we've got calculators. I can't write. <laughs> i got no chance here. This, so, I, so I turned to the back of this exercise book and I wrote a load of goals. And they were like, be a millionaire by the time I was 20. And to have some funny things like, did a splits like John claude Van Damme, you know, and have an international business. And that's all I focused on, self-improvement. So I moved away with the ambition... And, and self-educated myself by reading lots of self-help books, three to four books per week. Yep. And networking. And, yeah, by the time I was 20, I was done. 22, I was able to retire, which lasted about... But, but that's an incredible that story. Month. But that's an incredible <laughs> story. And, of course, it would have been a disaster to retire at 22. Yeah, absolutely. But how does somebody with no obvious advantages make that much money that quickly that young? Just don't focus on the money. I focused on providing a service that would change lives. I took a system that's in the dark ages, like the politics are, which I know you like to get into, <laughs> and I modernised it. So rather than people te- teaching, kicking and punching, and pe- kids getting punished and saying, you've got to do 10 press-ups now, then I'd reward them. I'd, I would um, reward them for their great efforts with court being good cards in classes rather than the punishment side. They would have life skills, all the stuff that's not taught at school, goal-setting, respect, discipline, confidence. And is that what comes through martial arts? That's what I put into my martial arts schools, yeah. And so parents wanted their kids to come. They just went wild for it. And what they, instead of having, like, back then, you had role models for kids like Eminem and people like that are on the walls. They want positive role models for their kids. So they wanted their kids, they looked at me, who was in shape, can do the business, was teaching life skills, attitudinal qualities, because not all the kids, you know, were were amazing at school academically. I think school's a great thing if you want to be a lawyer, doctor, a dentist yeah. or something like that. Otherwise, I don't feel there's anything in school that I've picked up and so learned. You, so you build a business. Help me. You build a business and the money, what, did somebody come and buy the business off you? Or, I mean, how, how did that quick money come? I just, um, just had hundreds and hundreds of students within. Parents, when they see you can change their child... Yeah. And you can stop them being bullied at school. Yeah. Stop them getting teased at school. And, and that, that's by giving the kids confidence to stand up for themselves, by having the basic skills. Yeah, the martial arts is the hook. Yep. So I can deliver that in a great way. And I did things back then too, which was unusual. I had music on and parts of the lessons. So mm. it'd be like training in the gym. I don't know often you go to the gym. You look quite well built to me. <laughs> I don't really, <laughs> I but I do walk a bit. I do, I do a I bit of exercise. I do post out Arnold Schwarzenegger once. <laughs> but um, no. it's like training in the gym with no music on. It's very different. So I, I went against the grain a little bit back then. And I got some stick for it. You know, they say the lead dog takes the fawns, and I certainly yep. did in my industry, but I could do nothing else. I was living in the bed sit, which was £40 a week, you know, changing the sofa to the bed every night and back again. And I was so poor at Christmas, my family sent me hampers for food. <laughs> and uh, my girlfriend at the time, she, um, she just handed me this briefcase, like, right, you keep saying you're going to do this thing, and go and do it. That's amazing. I, mean, I just did the opposite to what everyone else But did. to do it that quickly is amazing. I'm just interested in sort of thinking about you know, the kids in North Devon and their parents keen that they learn, as you said, attitudinal skills, discipline. I do wonder, you know, we've got uh, knife crime problems in London and Birmingham and all our big cities. I mean, is this the kind of thing that kids... Could this be done on a big scale in London and elsewhere? Or, is it, or are those facilities there and just not being used? 
It can be done on a big scale. It's not so much the kids, it's the parents who are the real members, because they're the ones who recognise that there's a problem in this world. They're paying for the memberships. So we've got 1,068 schools. We've actually grown from the pandemic unbelievably well, because mm. parents are worried about how their children are going to end up, and they recognise the educational system is probably not where it's at. And they look at people like me, who was able to be financially free at 22. A lot, of, a lot of that was to do with financial education. I was hanging around with amazing people at 18 years old who were telling me to invest in property, which I started buying houses. You obviously had loads of confidence. I, yeah, martial arts gives you confidence. Yeah, you get all the little colour bouts, you work up towards your black belt, so you're a confident person. And when you backs up against the wall and you've got nothing else you can do with your career, you, you're going to make it work. My mum was a lawyer, and my dad comes from a get-a-trade background for the Brunel, and that goes right back to my, like, great-great-grandparents. So they were horrified. They didn't talk to me for a while about, <laughs> like, there's someone to be a martial arts instructor. Then they all ended up working for me. If you and know. how does a successful martial arts instructor in Barnstable in North Devon become Michael Jackson's bodyguard? How does that happen? I had this circle of friends, and I know it's, it's like a fairy tale story, isn't it? <laughs> so the whole bar the Barnstable thing, I, I went there because my mum got a transfer from a law firm from Swindon to there. So I followed there about six months later. Got a job at £2.75 working as a lifeguard at the Leisure Centre. Just felt I was too young at 16 to achieve anything. People wouldn't work for me, they wouldn't take me seriously. And in the end, you know, I, I decided to, to go for it. The trouble when you live down in the tourist area, in the winter there is no work, there is no, of course, yeah, it's a short there is no lifeguard yeah. jobs to do. So at Christmas time, it, I, I had to make a decision and really go for it. So it was that summer, well, that's afterwards that I launched the schools. And, um, yeah, my network of friends, I, I had a uh, reporter come in, and back then there's lots of news agencies. Um, there's one particular news agency in the South. I won't mention the names because I'm not allowed to, but they, they came just by chance. He worked, he had, um, two, he worked in Barnstable and had two children that trained at my school. Got on the calculator, worked out the figures. I was driving a Ferrari, just the signals were, were there. And um, he came up to me and said, Matt, I've heard you've been bullied, you've got no qualifications, I want the story. I just thought it was for the local press. Two days later, it was the front page of all the tabloids. I was on, remember Trisha, I was on Trisha and, yeah, and um, all the shows and Esther Ramson, the yeah. about my bullied, bull being bullied at school and how that motivated me to do really well. And it came to the attention of um, Yuri Geller, who yeah. he wanted to make, he's very much into mind power, you can do anything you want as long as you focus, not just bending spoons like he, like he is in England. I mean, the guy's world famous, he doesn't get much credit for it in the UK, I don't think. And he kind of took, he took me under his wing. So he called me up, invited me up to his... So he was your mentor, really? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he took me under his wing. He saw in me something that um, he could work with. And um, I found a quote, I spoke to him the other day, and I found a quote, and he said, I'm gonna, I predict one day Matt's going to be internationally known and have the biggest chain. And he was totally right on on that side of things. But he trusted me with his inner circle, which is like Mohammed Al-Fayyad, the owner of Harrods at the time, yeah. Michael Jackson, you know, David Blaine, Britney Spears. They, they, they were my mates. So when my friends were going out doing this, which I never did before I was 27, 28, always hanging around with, they say your network is your net worth. Yeah. So 18 years old, my, my friends were a little different. And it only um, came apparent that my life was a bit abnormal, I suppose is when uh, I went to get married for the first time. We're, well, I'm great to was my first, like my rehearsal marriage, I call it. And um, I drew up my stag do <laughs> list, and nobody on there was normal. They all needed security detail. <laughs> so uh, it was just me and one other who went bowling. But when, you, when you're raised with, around those people, that, yeah. I think that's a better education and reading the right books. No, amazing. Than what I've ever learned from... And you worked with, work with, with Michael Jackson for about 10 years. Yeah. yeah, so me and Michael were good friends. So we were 
good buddies first. Um, I never took any money from him. I, don't, I think that's why I worked so well. And mm. um, we, we had lots of mutual you friends. You never took any money from him? No, I didn't need to. No. No, didn't need to take any. I was already done by, by that stage. I think that was the reason why he trusted me so much. OK. And you became... Because you were able to say this guy... So you weren't really just now. a bodyguard. You were more of a friend than an advisor. I was his friend first, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And then I realised things were not great in his life, financially, where he was asset-rich and very cash-poor. And I didn't want his money, because I knew the, the relationship changes. And um, I think that's why Yuri introduced me to him. Because he spent a fair bit of time in this country, didn't he? he? The last 10 years of his life, apart from 2005, obviously, with the, with the false allegations made against him, yeah, he spent an awful lot of time. you believe those... He wanted to live here. And you believe those allegations are I know those false. allegations are completely false. I mean, that documentary that was made recently, that's just been thrown out of court. They appealed against <coughs> it. Yeah. And that, the judge just says, that's uh, nonsense, there's nothing to, to back in it. I would not associate myself. I've got an organisation of over 120,000 children in it. I've got six kids of my own. Yeah. I would not protect and associate myself with a man who's like that. He was a master at creating publicity and manipulating the media, trying to work out, you know, is he gay, is he straight? Yeah. He wanted yeah. you to guess that, you know, the whole yeah. makeup thing and the glo white glove and, and so on. But it backfired him in death because he's not here to defend himself anymore. Is it, in a way, is it in a way, his level of global fame and success, did it sort of make his life unlivable? Oh, I, I would never trade it. That, people used to say to me, I must be so glamorous, you know, mm. when you were hanging out with Mike and... Mm. Dear me, it was, no, it was no. awful. We his, could not do anything. His brother was here the other week. Tilo was here, here yeah, the other week. Yeah, yeah. Very charming, very lovely man and, 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 and obviously still very deeply affected by the death of his brother. What an extraordinary episode, but you've got on from that to do some very interesting things. And I, one thing that really interested me, because, you know, obviously much of my life, not all of it, has been politics, and one of the things that really strikes me, Matt, is how utterly disconnected, not just the government, but the whole of Parliament, they're utterly disconnected from entrepreneurs. Yeah. And entrepreneurs come at all levels. Every shopkeeper is an entrepreneur. They're people running their own businesses, they're running their own limited companies, they're self-employed, they're sole traders, uh, and all they get is a mass and a heap of regulation put on them, much of it, I believe, by Brussels, but often over-interpreted here. And no-one's on their side. Um, it's amazing that five and a half million people still are out there having a go on their own. Um, but you're trying, aren't you, to act as a sort of mentor now for entrepreneurs? It just seems like madness to me. It'd be like taking your child to learn to swim from a swimming instructor who doesn't know how to swim. Would you do that, Nigel? No. So why the hell have we got people running the country, an economy, which is a business? Our country is a business. They're managing our cash flow. Cash, cash flow is king and managing it right. Mm. Why have we got people running our country who've never ran businesses before? Oh, come on, he's good at Latin. He's good at lying. <laughs> yeah. But then he's at the head of it. It's though, I mean, I, to me, it's been the low grade of the cabinet that's really astonished me. Um, uh, and, and if we go back to George Osborne, who was Chancellor for a long time, I mean, the guy had never had a paper round. He'd never done anything. In no, the I'm sure they're very intelligent before. people in their own areas, but they don't know how to run a business. They don't know how to manage money. No, and manage no, money, no. financial education should be taught at schools, and it's not. They teach you to go, leave school, get good qualifications. Yep get a job, buy a house, pay the mortgage off, which is the worst thing you could possibly do. All the rich have worked that one out. They, they go and buy buy-to-let properties and leverage the money. And it's the cheapest money you can borrow. And then they teach you to, you know, get a good job and you earn a lot of money. And if you do earn a lot of money, then they stab you in this culture we have some, some, in the UK for some reason. Retire at 65, well, 67 now, actually, isn't it? Yeah. It'll be, it'll be 80 by the time. <laughs> yeah. 
and then after 10, 15 years of enjoyment of arthritis, trying to travel in the world, then die. I mean, that's just messed up. They don't know what they're doing. How can they possibly advise it? And how can you spend 37 billion on an app that doesn't even work? I mean, what idiot did that? How does that work, you know? This conversation has been had in every pub in the country over the yeah. course of the last few months, I can I assure know, you. I don't know why you talk about this, but with me as a businessman, I make, I make a lot of money, I do really well, and I'm hungry for success. We've got 1,068 martial arts schools on our brand. Fantastic. We've got a huge property portfolio, but there's no incentives for my property portfolio side or my other business side because of taxation for any of my... And I, got, I still mix with a lot of millionaire, billionaire friends. They, they're talking about not hanging around, Nigel. Why would they? There's, there's no... The tax hikes have only just begun. This, this is it. Well, I, you know, I, I did a feature in the last section about the 1970s. You know, rising inflation, rising taxes... Um, loss of confidence in government, rubbish piling up in the streets. And actually what happened in the 70s was there was a brain drain. You know, very talented people, young people particularly, fled to Australia, America. And the very last thing I want to see is that happening again. But I do, like you, I worry. It is happening. Tax, I know people out there who are worth a quarter of a yeah. billion who are looking at leaving the country That's no because good. they're getting taxed no. over ATP in the pounds soon. And, and it's only... Who's paying for all these grants, Dan? Who's going to pay for that oh, back? It's going yeah, to I know, I know, it's a mess. Matt, yeah. you've talked about young people. Can fitness training, martial arts, can it benefit older people too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's been known. It's, it's like anything. If you're not growing, you're dying. And whether that's mental health or physical health, it's mental health um, day on the weekend, and it's important. My grandfather, he lived to his 97, and he always kept his brain active with puzzles and stuff, and he really believed yeah. that's what stimulated him to keep yeah. doing that. But, yeah, it's been proven, like, even, like, weight training can make you live longer. And um, it's, it's just, it, it, they're linked together, you know. If I have a good day in business, it's because I've had a good workout before. It has, if I don't work out for some reason, I don't do so well in my business, you know. It's just, it's all linked together. To so active motivated. body, active mind, they, and they go together. Well, yeah, well, the word wealth comes from health. They're linked together. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to have health first, otherwise well, the wealth is not enjoyable, is it? So I was drinking a pint here. Probably not good for my reputation, but I can't win on your show because if I don't drink it, I'll say, ah, oh, he's arrogant. But... Well, Matt, I'm very pleased you did come and join us and have a pint. Well, that was Matt Fidesz. And actually, I think, a very inspiring story, you know, for young people watching this who may not be particularly good academically, but if they work hard, get themselves fit, who knows what they can achieve. Right, well, that's it. I'm, I'm very, very pleased that I managed to... Um, very pleased that I managed to do some exercise this morning, which I did. Probably not enough, but I did do some. Otherwise, I'd have felt very, very guilty there talking to Matt. Now, it's now time for the last part of the show, for the last couple of minutes, and it is Barrage the Farage. Oh, yes, it really is. You send in your questions. I don't get first sight of them. So here goes. Paul is first. Are we still in some legal agreement with the EU where we have to take asylum seekers from the English Channel? Can't we just send them back to France? No, we have no agreement at all with France at the moment. Uh, the French don't want to have a summit, don't want to talk to us. Uh, they're just happy to keep taking our money, 54 million, and in a rugby analogy, playing wing three quarters and passing the problem, as they see it, across to us. There is no agreement in place. There's no prospect of an agreement in place. They threaten to cut off, cut, cut off our electricity supply and we're going to have to stand up for ourselves. Our government
to stand up for ourselves pretty tough and pretty quick. Stephen asks me, what's your view on the new emissions cameras being fitted on main roads that go into force next month? My view is we will be photographed, uh, we will be tracked, um, not yet microchipped, thank goodness. Uh, I just think big government is getting out of control, uh, and I'm not sure, actually, that it stops any serious criminality whatsoever. It just brings a burden on those, you know, normal, freedom-loving, decent citizens. Gareth, on email, asks me, do you think political correctness contributed to thousands of COVID deaths? I think that we had politicians throughout the pandemic making decisions... On what and how they thought they'd be judged by the public and what it would do for their re-election chances more than what would be the right thing to do. And after the initial, you know, should we do herd immunity, should we lock down, after we'd gone through that, through much of the rest of the pandemic, they did their best through government adverts to terrify us. <laughs>